Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Welcome back to an ongoing series exploring the life and the crime of Lindsay Suvonaroth, the young woman convicted of conspiracy to commit murder as a result of her role in the foiled Halifax Shopping Center Valentine's Day shooting plot. In the last entry in this series, Part 5, Unloading James and Lindsay's Arsenal, we were joined by firearms expert Trevor Furlot, who helped us understand the capabilities of the rifle and shotgun James Gamble had planned to contribute to this plot, and how the plotter's inexperience may have come into play had an anonymous tipster not changed the course of the story. In this episode, we'll review an altogether different aspect of Lindsay Suvonaroth's story. Rather than focusing on the specifics of the Valentine's Day shooting plot like we did in Part 5, we'll instead look at the subculture that both Lindsay and James were members of. An association that had served to initially bring them together, and then to provide them with some of the dark inspiration for their plot to shoot, kill, and die together in the Halifax Shopping Center's food court. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, we'll enter the strange world of Lindsay Suvonaroff and the Columbiners. Another shout-out about my Eric Harris pillow! Ooh, I love my Eric Harris pillow! Yay! During our time with Lindsay, we were left with a lot of uncomfortable things to consider. Hearing her discuss her connections with Nazism was very upsetting to a large portion of the show's audience. My email inbox can prove that if anyone needs to see it. But at least to me, when I consider our current social climate, her ideological views don't seem as rare as I had always thought them to be. Turns out in 2019, racism, sadly, is alive and well. The thing that really surprised me, however, was her association with the subculture referred to as Columbiners. The world of the Columbiners was completely new to me and Lindsay's story served as my introduction. Shortly after Lindsay's arrest, when the news of the foiled plot began spreading, the press quickly began to refer to Lindsay and James as being obsessed with the Columbine High School Massacre. Initially, I had simply thought this was the press's way of saying it was some sort of copycat-type crime. But as I followed the developments in the case, and further researched the players in the story, what I quickly learned is that there's in fact a large community of people from all over the world who use their intense interest in the Columbine Massacre as a sort of twisted glue to hold their large social network together. Now, of course, I've seen many message boards and groups dedicated to the discussion of specific crimes or missing persons cases. 
but the Columbiners, they're different. This seems to be more like fandom or even hero worship than it was about curiosity or research. It's honestly unlike anything I've ever encountered and unlike anything I'd ever have expected. To anyone listening to this that is unfamiliar with the Columbiners, this episode will be full of surprises. And for those of you who are aware of them, you'll likely learn some new things about the history of this subculture and how various aspects of the Columbine attack influenced Lindsay and James and their plot to kill. In a few short moments, we'll get to a discussion I had with Rachel Monroe, an American writer and investigative journalist who spent a tremendous amount of time researching the Columbiners and who recently completed work on a new book that will feature Lindsay Suvonaroth's story. But before we get to my talk with Rachel, I want to take some time to give a crash course on the Columbine school shooting and provide a bit of background on how that tragedy influenced Lindsay Suvonaroth and James Gamble. everyone, the reaction of so many people today was, oh no, not again, another high school, Columbine High in Littleton, Colorado this time on the edge of Denver. It has been a horror. The gunmen, fellow students who rushed the school and opened fire for reasons we do not know yet, for reasons we may never know. Two of the young killers are dead. The sheriff says it looks like a suicide mission. Eyewitnesses say the two gunmen wearing black trench coats and black masks came in shooting and began working their way through the school. Teachers raced ahead to classrooms, yelling for students to run. Someone pulled a fire alarm. Started coming in the library and opening fire and shooting off bombs. There was a guy at a table right next to us, next to me and her, and they just shot him and then walked away and then he was just sitting there in a pool of blood. For hours after the shooting began, police were picking their way through the building, looking for the suspects, students who were hiding or trapped, and more victims. What police and everyone else are looking for now is a reason for the violence that tore this quiet school and suburban neighborhood apart just weeks before graduation. I think it's safe to assume anyone listening to this has at least a basic understanding and probably some unsettling memories of the Columbine High School Massacre. But just in case you're unfamiliar, I'll give you enough information to provide the necessary context for the rest of the episode. Now that news clip you just heard describes some of the chaos that resulted from one of North America's, if not the world's most well-known school shootings. It happened at Columbine High School in a town with a population just under 25,000 in Colorado. On the morning of April 20th, 1999, two 12th grade students, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebolt, armed a series of homemade explosives they placed in and around their high school. The first was placed in a greenbelt several kilometers away from the school. This was planned to go off first and distract emergency responders. The second were two duffel bags containing bombs made out of propane tanks. These were placed within the school's cafeteria and were timed to go off during the lunch hour rush. In the third bombs, they were built into Eric and Dylan's cars. These were timed to explode as emergency crews descended in response to the cafeteria bombs. As Eric and Dylan entered the school that morning, armed with knives, a variety of firearms, and backpacks filled with pipe bombs and ammunition, 
Their plan was to open fire on those fleeing the chaos caused by the cafeteria bombs. Fortunately, as things turned out, the cafeteria bombs, which would have led to an unimaginable number of fatalities, had failed to detonate. However, that didn't stop Eric and Dylan from roaming the halls, taunting and shooting anyone who crossed their paths. In the end, after unleashing roughly 47 minutes of terror, Eric and Dylan would take their own lives in the school's library. Left in their wake, Columbine High School had lost 12 students and one member of faculty, with many others seriously injured. Now, the Columbine attack, it's gone on to change the conversation that surrounds social issues such as school shootings, gun control, and bullying. But it has also gone on to inspire an ever-growing list of copycats. Lindsay Suvonaroth and James Gamble perhaps are among the most devoted on that list. In fact, it would be difficult to understand the story of Lindsay, James, and the Valentine's Day shooting plot without at least a decent understanding of Eric Harris, Dylan Klebold, and the Columbine Massacre. Nearly every aspect of Lindsay and James' planning in some way took inspiration from or played homage to Eric and Dylan. When I initially reviewed the 1,200-page log of the Facebook conversations between Lindsay and James, one of the things that stood out to me was the near-constant references to Eric and Dylan and the way in which these references evolved. It started out by Lindsay and James comparing themselves to this murderous couple they idolized. But as you heard Lindsay describe, it quickly got to the point that Lindsay and James believed that in some supernatural way, they had become Eric and Dylan. It's admittedly very strange and equally as difficult to put in my own words how this deepening obsession presented itself in the plotting of the Valentine's Day shooting. I think the best way I could explain this to you is to present three separate excerpts from Lindsay and James' Facebook conversation to provide examples of how these references to Columbine occurred. The first excerpt I'll share is from very early on in James and Lindsay's relationship. Only days after connecting, and still at a time prior to the birth of their mass shooting plot, the pair briefly discuss some of their friends and do so using the comparisons of Eric and Dylan before ultimately Lindsay and James choose their individual roles in their new relationship. But to provide some context to this piece, in the world of Columbine, Eric Harris is often said to be the more aggressive and bloodthirsty of the pair, with Dylan Klebold taking on more of a supporting role, motivated more so by his eventual suicide than the actual massacre. How strong is it? Depends on how much wine you add to it. By the way, I can't remember if you've seen photos of me in my black trench coat or not. I think I have. There's some on my Facebook page and others on my Tumblr. You really should get Skype, though. I used to have it. I'm not a fan of phone calls or interactions where people can see me, hear my voice. Ah, see, I was just thinking that if you had it, I could introduce you to some people. Like Sutcliffe Juggin from Tumblr. I know you follow her. She's been a friend of mine for several years now. The name sounds familiar. This is her in case you've forgotten. Fun fact, she almost shares a birthday with Eric Harris. And she acts just like him sometimes, too. And her name happens to be Erica. That's really cool, actually. It's hilarious that Dylan's birthday is on 
She's also the reason why I'd change my Tumblr icon to Dylan, so I can be him while she's Eric, even though I feel I have more in common with Eric. I feel like I'm a combination of the two of them. We all are in some way or another. Though I'd like to think of it in terms of the relationship dynamic between them. Like, I'm the Eric to some other people's Dylan, and the Dylan to some other people's Eric. If that makes sense. Yeah, I I get it. I don't... I don't really have that, unfortunately. How come? Not close enough with anybody. Hell, neither am I really. Like, I never made any friends in college ever. All my friends are online, basically. I only have one friend in real life. He isn't down for the whole mass murder thing. But he'd be Dylan, no doubt. He's taller than me and has long blonde hair. And I could be your Eric. How's about that? That'd be nice. The next excerpt I'll share occurred weeks later. At this point, their planning is well underway, and Lindsay and James are beginning to make references to becoming Eric and Dylan rather than simply taking on the role. In this excerpt, they joke about meeting up with Eric and Dylan in hell and discuss what they may say to them. My slave. I am. The one and only. Like I said, we're so, so lucky. Think about the chain of events that led us here. It's incredible. And how we took on the personalities of Eric and Dylan. Exactly. Which has been happening all throughout my life without me even realizing it. It's crazy. I got into Columbine way back in 2007. If only I knew that I'd carry out something similar in a decade. I wasn't even into Columbine until like these past few months. Though I had friends who were. Did you know basic things about it though? Like their names? Yeah. I only started seriously researching it after when, for some reason, I felt the need to put a school shooting into my novel. And we wouldn't be talking now if you didn't. Indeed. It's funny how things work out. Whether it's fate or luck or coincidence, it's something. It has to be. I never really believed in that stuff before. Maybe it's just an extraordinary coincidence. Or it could have all been determined from the beginning. That is also very possible. All the religious nutjobs who'll think we're possessed by Satan and that we'll be burning in hell. (laughs) If we were, at least we'd be able to hang out with Eric and Dylan. Can you imagine? What's up, guys? We just beat your high score. Hey, Eric, I was you for the past few months. (laughs) What if souls are real and we will end up wandering the earth for eternity? Death is so fucking fascinating. The next and final excerpt I'll share has a much different tone. Not at all playful like what you just heard. What may come as a surprise to people following this story is that Lindsay and James were incredibly supportive and caring, at least towards each other. James was very open about his depression and his struggle to delay suicide. And Lindsay always seemed willing to hear him out and provide a shoulder to cry on, so to speak. In this next piece, which occurred just weeks before Lindsay boarded the plane to Halifax, you'll hear James describing his longing for death, and you'll hear Lindsay attempting to comfort him. 
all in the context of Columbine. I want to die already. It'll be better when we die together. I can imagine it. When everything is over, and we'll find some secluded spot in the mall to go to. Comforting each other, knowing we'll be together in death. Do you think you'll be crying? I'll hug you if you do. I might be. We'll share one last kiss. It'll be beautiful. We'll set my phone up in front of us. Say our final things, then shoot ourselves on camera. I wish I could be hugging you right now. I need it bad. I'd hug you, and I'd hold you. Thank you for not finding me weak, even though I cry constantly. It's okay to cry. Thank you. I'm always here for you. It's what Eric would do for Dylan. I wonder if they ever cried together. Or what their final moments were like. I guess we'll find out. Do you ever feel like, after death, you'll get all the answers to all your questions you've ever had? It'd be nice. Maybe. I think I'll go to bed soon. Alright. I'll message you when I wake up tomorrow. Good boy. Those three clips, as unsettling as they are, were shared simply to illustrate the extent that Eric Harris, Dylan Klebolt, and the Columbine attack consumed the thoughts and planning of Lindsay and James. Had I not looked so closely into this particular story, I would think this obsession was simply a one-in-a-million type occurrence. But as I said earlier, Lindsay and James are not as unique as we may think. There are actually a lot of people who look to the Columbine shooters in a similar fashion. So, now that we've discussed Columbine and how it's found its way into Lindsay and James's planning, we have the necessary context to zoom out and take a better look at this subculture that Lindsay and James were, or are, members of, the Columbiners. To assist in helping me unpack this topic, I've invited someone who knows as much, if not more, about the Columbiners and about the story of Lindsay Suvonaroth, than anyone else. She's an American-based journalist who's wrote extensively about the Columbiners and has a book featuring the story of Lindsay Suvonarov set to be released in the coming months. After a short break, we'll be joined by Rachel Monroe. My name is Rachel Monroe, and I am a journalist based in Texas. Um, I write a lot about crime, among many other things. I've been following this particular case for a while, and it's going to be part of a book that I'm writing that's coming out in August called Savage Appetite. Very cool. Now, how does a journalist in Texas find out about a girl from Illinois coming to Halifax to commit a mass shooting? How, how did you learn about this? <laughs> Well, I had been interested in and following the subculture of Columbiners. Um, I first wrote about them actually in 2012, so seven years ago, um, and had been interested in them as an internet phenomenon uh, for a while. And then, um, and then when I heard that some Columbiners had actually planned a shooting, it really uh, caught my eye because I had 
we and we can talk about you know my my take on Columbiners, but one of the things I had thought for a long time is you know people who talk online, but what they talk about online is very different from what they do in real life, and so it really um, made me sit up and pay attention. Mm-hmm. Your prior work, like before all this happened with Lindsay, with like your work with Columbiners, how did how did that start? How did you get in? Like, is there any reason you became interested in that subculture? Well, it started when I had been living in Baltimore and there was a school shooting that happened as they happen in the States fairly regularly. It wasn't a big splashy one. Um, and we have so many school shootings in the U S now that, um, there are these local ones that never, never make the big news. And so this one happened a few miles away from me and I was, I just went online to get more information about it. And there wasn't a whole lot, but I did find all these Tumblr search results started popping up and that surprised me. I was like, okay, why is this this breaking news um like a trending on Tumblr? And then I saw one of the people on Tumblr um mentioned something about like the Columbiner community. You know, I hope this doesn't reflect badly on the Columbiner community or something. Mm-hmm. I was like, what is the Columbiner community? Um, and so it was just one of those things that happen sometime. I think a lot of us do this and stumble on something weird on the internet. And then the next thing I know, it was like 3 a.m. And I've just been like scrolling for hours, wow. you know, looking at, looking at this weird world that was out there that I had no idea about. Um, and just finding it really strange and fascinating and troubling and interesting yeah. all at once. It's kind of like the same way I found out about it because for me it was, you know, a, a, a planned shooting at my mall at the mall. I started researching it and that's when I learned of the Columbiner community. So I kind of had the same experience as you. And I, I remember when I stumbled upon it, it just seemed like one of those things that are almost too strange to be true. Like I couldn't imagine yeah. this existing, but you know, and then as you dig in and you see, you know, the subculture for what it is, it's, it's very real and, you know, and it's not, you know, 10 random people. It's, it's a massive group of people. Yeah, definitely. And the more that I started researching it, so I found a, um, there's a, an academic who I think it's French who, um, wrote about how Columbine came to exist online. People who, who wrote about Columbine online in the years after it happened. And according to her, there the original Columbiner community, although I don't think they were calling themselves Columbiners at that point, but um, there were people on YouTube. This is maybe like 2007, 2008, 2009. And this was like, it tended to be a lot of young men um, who identified with the Columbine shooters and made videos of themselves striking similar poses. Um, We know that the Columbine shooters were really into videotaping themselves um, so these are almost like tribute videos done in the same style. And then eventually there were a bunch of copycat shootings, sh- school shootings, other mass shootings in the United States by people who were involved in this fandom, young men who were involved in this fandom. So YouTube started cracking down on Columbine content. And uh, according to this researcher, by 2011, it was pretty much gone. There was nothing, uh, if you were posting anything sympathetic about Columbine, it would get taken down really quickly. And so um, the community that had popped up there vanished. But what I found 
was that around 2012, when I started looking into it, it had kind of reemerged um, on Tumblr and became a Tumblr phenomenon. And the interesting thing that was happening there was that instead of being primarily, uh, you know, angry young men, it was it was a lot of like lovesick young women, and that was what really surprised me. Hmm. Very yeah. So they just once they got kicked off of YouTube, so to speak, they kind of were reborn on. I guess Tumblr, which is I didn't uh, I didn't know anything about Tumblr either until Lindsay's story. So I feel this story makes me feel very old. <laughs> yeah, I mean Tumblr is, as far as I can tell, I think it's the social media one of the social media networks that tends to skew quite female. Um, I think they all skew a little bit female, but this one more than most. It's also just the way that it's set up. It tends to be really popular with fandoms. And so fandoms for, you know, Harry Potter or One Direction or whatever. Um, and so YouTube is sort of more suited to like manifestos, right? Because mm. um, it's kind of one person with a, with a video. But Tumblr is this very community oriented. There are a lot of in-jokes. People are always like reblogging memes that other people made. It's like very heavy on the meme making, which, um, as you know, Lindsay was really into and, mm. and kind of talented at in a you know, disturbing way. Um, and so that, and the other thing that happened in 2012 that kind of influenced this community, um, that I found was that, uh, did you ever watch the TV show American horror story? I saw like a season of it. Okay. Yeah. So the first season, there's a character that like that cute guy. And he, he, it's a, the storyline is directly, uh, referencing Columbine that young man is sort of more, it's like he's a slightly ambivalent heartthrob, but he's like the heartthrob of that season. And so a lot of people have the theory that the Columbine fandom on YouTube and the fact that it was like all these girls with crushes on the, on the, on the Columbine shooters came out because these girls were watching this TV show. They're like, Oh, look at that cute boy. They start researching the show. It leads them to Columbine, and then they, then they're like, "Oh, I have a crush on these real school shooters." Oh wow! I don't remember that storyline yeah. of the show. What? What? Could you just explain that character and how he relates to Columbine? Yeah, I mean it's pretty convoluted, uh, and the, I guess these are going to be spoilers if anybody hasn't seen this show that came out like you know seven or eight years ago. He's he's just like kind of a this uh, moody dreamboat guy who hangs around this haunted house and makes eyes at the teenage daughter, the high school age daughter. And then it, you know, come to find out that actually he's a ghost and he's a ghost because he had been depressed and bullied at school and he bought a gun to his school and shot a bunch of his classmates um, in the library. You know, that's like that. They're, they're hiding under tables. I mean, it's directly referencing Columbine. There's a scene in the show that's, that's very clear. And then he ends up being killed by the police. He's a ghost, but he's like a cute ghost. He's also like a rapist. It's like he's like a rapist Columbine heartthrob ghost. It's a wow. very complicated show. Yeah. Well, just, <laughs> what's, uh, what's really strange is I made it no secret that the conversations that I had with Lindsay in those original episodes – that were heavily edited. It's what you hear in the episodes is probably an hour and a half of probably four hours of conversation. But one of the things that I edited out was she was talking about 
what she's been doing in prison. And she had talked in the episodes, people heard her describe a book she wrote called Grit and Glory that really mirrored her and James's story. But another thing she told me about that didn't make it to the episodes is she's working on a book. um, She just, she called it Haunt Me Harder. And it was about, if my, if my memory serves me, it's about a young girl who has recently moved into a house and the house was haunted by a school shooter. (laughs) And it sounds very, very similar to what you're describing. And as that, yeah. that's just, I don't know if it means anything, but that's just kind of interesting. With you following column, like the Columbine or subculture this, this closely, have you seen many other cases of people actually, you know, attempting or performing a mass shooting that were clearly inspired by, or, or were members of the Columbiner subculture? Like, have you seen other members of this group commit related crimes? No. Well, and I guess what I should say is there have been a lot of um, school shooters, people who commit mass, mass violence. Um, every single one I can think of besides Lindsay is a young man. So I'll say he, who, who, and they all, there have been many of them who have been interested in Columbine, who have um, posted on message boards or on YouTube or have been shown to have researched or otherwise been fascinated with Columbine. So there's there's definitely a link. I think there's something of like several dozen school shooters since 1999 when Columbine happened have said that they were inspired by Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. So there's certainly a link there. But the Columbiners that I was interested in, there were almost all girls and they were almost all, you know, like under 18, like girls, um, some of them quite young. They were up to something more complicated. It seemed to me, I mean, obviously it's really disturbing when somebody, when when a teenage girl says that she has a crush on somebody who's famous for murder. I mean, that's just on the surface, really awful and troubling. And it would be really easy to dismiss them as being wannabe mass murderers themselves or being crazy or just seeking attention, but I don't know. I thought that there was like, for me, I ended up thinking of a lot of what I saw back in 2012 as being a way that girls who were suffering from depression or bullying, um, girls who were, who were angry, but didn't quite know how to say it. Instead of saying, I'm really sad or I'm really angry. They would say, I have a crush on this boy who's like famously sad or famously angry. I mean, this is like a classic thing that girls do when they're teenagers. You kind of can't own your own desires or something. So instead of being like, I want to play guitar, you have a crush on a boy who plays guitar, right? And so I kind of saw this just as a dark version of that. It doesn't make it any less troubling, but it makes it a little bit more understandable in a funny way. Mm-hmm. Do you see any, like this sort of thing, do you see any positives coming out of a, a group like a subculture like the Columbiners? Like, does it give to these people who are hurting and kind of loners, does it give them something positive in the end or is it all bad in your opinion? I don't think that it is all bad. Um, I mean, it's tricky, right? At the time, and back in 2012, I wrote about them a little bit and I said, you know, these are girls who are finding a community to talk about their pain, to talk about their depression, to talk about, you know, their dark thoughts. They um, were often like really supportive of each other. They would post things about 
um, a hard day they had at school or bullying and other members of this community would validate them or tell them that they were beautiful um, or just be kind to them. And so in that way, it did seem like there was some positive that came out of it. But then over time, as I kept kind of checking back in, I saw more and more things that, that I found really troubling. I mean, there would be, you know, every time that somebody, there was like a new mass shooting, a little fandom would pop up. And I, I remember being really disgusted when um, Dylan Roof, who shot um, the people in the church in Charleston, um, he immediately, if you go on Tumblr, he immediately had a fandom, you know, of these girls saying like, I don't care that he was terrible and, and racist and a white supremacist. You know, he just needs love. He just needs my, my love. So these girls were saying, you know, I'm not a racist, but I, I just love this murderer who is. And I don't know. I stopped my, my kind of initial rosy take on it started to diminish a little bit, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And do you see a subculture like the specifically the Columbiners? Do you think that it has the potential to be almost like a, a breeding ground for these types of events? Like to, like I'm just thinking if there's a group of young women primarily who are, you know, um, idolizing people who commit mass shootings, do you? Does it seem like it would have the potential to encourage? lonely young men to do things to appeal to this group do you, like do you know what i mean like does it do you see this as encouraging yeah that's interesting well you see that a little bit with um what lindsay and james did right like they a lot of and i've read their chat transcripts too and a lot of what they did was thinking about how what they would do would be perceived by the columbiners how how it would be reposted how everybody would look at their pictures, how um, everybody would want to read Lindsay's novel. Um, And so, I mean, that's certainly an instance of um, some motivation right there. Yeah, they made made it clear that the plan that they had was more about how it would be perceived by fellow Columbiners than how it would be perceived by the members of the public that would, you know, be reacting to it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think they also, there's some, places in there where they're talking about being international news or, you know, is Lana Del Rey going to write a song about us? Mm. But yeah, I mean, it's tricky, right? It's, this is something that we're dealing with on the internet all the time. How do you preserve space for people to express alternative ideas, ideas that maybe we find uncomfortable or objectionable, but that, you know, can deserve to live in the in the public sphere and then how do you kind of shut down speech that crosses the line where where is that line um and i don't know if if we figured out a good way yet um tumblr last august did say that did make a statement that they were going to be cracking down on content that um explicitly glorified mass shooters um and you know, I've never been a person who's like that into censorship. Um, but I have to say, I was kind of like, yeah, I sort of think that's a good idea. Yeah, I, I think when I hear of like censorship in that level, I think it's a good idea for Tumblr. But it's also like the whole whack-a-mole thing. It's, you know, if that's no longer on Tumblr, there's just going to be some other venue for it. So I think it's a, an individual company shutting down or blocking this type of content 
I think it's it's more so to protect that company than it is to shut down that language and that you know content from existing. I think that right. The, the, well, the yeah. internet is just you know it's it's so big and it it turns our small little towns and our bedrooms into these massive metropolises where you know there's anybody into any random thing. So you know the the Columbiner subculture could never, in my mind anyway, could never exist without the internet because these people from across the world need to be brought together. Much like another subculture that is you is very unique is like you know like the furry furry movement or whatever like the uh-huh, people those uh-huh. people like without the internet how would these people realize that they all like dressing up as animals and acting like animals together you know it's a completely different thing than the Columbiner thing but it's just like I don't think there's a way when you bring a bunch of people together I think they're gonna find each other. I mean, I guess the the maybe the counter argument to that is that when you look at something like the Columbiner community, there are some people who some people in that fandom or whatever who um maybe would have will get there no matter what. But I think then there are some other people who get kind of roped in just be just kind of on a whim or because like something catches their eye or and then the next thing you know they're like kinda deeply into this thing and and if you minimize their chance if you minimize their chance to stumble on uh, you know this internet world where people think murder is great then then maybe they'll find a different way to channel their anger or to talk about their um the problems in their life yeah and that's a good point especially in looking at this through the lens of Lindsay's story because her fascin or obsession, I guess, with Columbine only lasted her a couple of months. And she described it in my interview where she was looking for Columbine information while researching her book. And then she ended up just getting sucked into this other world, which kind of led to two or three months of obsession with Columbine, ending with her getting on a plane to go to Nova Scotia to commit a mass shooting. So I guess, yeah, like if, if that content hadn't existed on tumblr and was instead through some weird backdoor on the internet that was hard to access maybe a vulnerable sensitive person you know wouldn't have found it right and she had the troubles she would have had all the troubles in her life anyway but maybe they wouldn't have taken this expression and it's it is just alarming how an obsession that's so brief can really change so much The, the prior work you did and the writing you did about Columbiners and that subculture, does that still exist somewhere? Like, is there somewhere that people who want to learn about this more can read what you've done? Yeah, I wrote an essay called Killer Crush on a website called The All, A-W-L, The All. And that was that was about my, my initial discovery of the, the subculture and some of my thoughts about it and, and how the surprising ways in which I related to some of these girls, even though uh, they also really creeped me out. And you mentioned you're writing a book that will include Lindsay's story and I, I believe a pretty major way, although the, the book's still a little ways out. What, what do you got to say about the book at this point? Sure. So the book comes out um, in August 20th and it's called Savage Appetites. I've been calling it a meta true crime book. It's about the obsession with true crime, particularly women's obsession with true crime. Uh, it's always been really interesting to me how, uh, I guess your podcast is an exception, but so much of the uh, content out there is 
about crime has is made by women or has an audience that's primary primarily female, um, which is surprising, right? Because most murderers are men, and actually, most murder victims are also men. So, violent crime is sort of a male world that then reading about consuming stories about violent crime is, is a, very, it's a very female obsession. And so I looked at uh, four different women over the course of the past hundred years who each became um, fascinated with a crime that, that didn't happen to her. Uh, and so the, the most recent one is Lindsay. And they each became obsessed kind of with a different figure in the crime story. So there's a woman who became obsessed with detectives and somebody else who became obsessed with victims somebody else who became kind of a defender, took on the defender role, getting somebody out of prison, um, and then Lindsay, who obviously became obsessed with some killers. Where will people be able to get this, or, or is it too far to, far away to tell? Uh, you can you can pre-order it right now, actually, believe it or not, on Amazon or in your favorite local independent bookstore. Uh, just look up Savage Appetites. My name's Rachel Monroe. I want to end this discussion by again restating the fact that neither Rachel nor I believe that all Columbiners are on the path to committing violent acts. However, it's hard to not see a connection between what Lindsay and James plan to do and their obsession with the Columbine shooting. Fortunately, an anonymous tipster made a call to Crime Stoppers and prevented something like Columbine from occurring at the Halifax Shopping Center. In our next episode in this series, we'll continue to examine the concepts associated with the story of Lindsay Suvonaroff and the Valentine's Day mass shooting plot. And with that, we'll conclude this episode of Nighttime. A big thank you to Rachel Monroe for taking some time out of her busy schedule to discuss the Columbiners with me. I'll be anxiously awaiting Rachel's book and plan to invite her back to Nighttime after its release to discuss the book in more detail. A huge shout-out to the Canadian bands Vox Somnia and Paragon Cause for providing the musical and ambient themes for this episode. You can check out both great bands' music by following the links in this episode's notes. A big thank you to Tyler of the West Side Fairy Tales podcast and Lisa of the Secret Life of Weddings podcast for again playing the parts of Lindsay and James in the reenactments you heard. Now, I'll end this episode with the biggest thanks of all. I want to thank anyone who's listening, as without you all, I'd have no excuse to spend so much of my time on this show. For anyone out there who wants more nighttime, please check out the Patreon group. For as little as a dollar a month, you can support the creation of the show and access the supporter-exclusive feed, which provides ad-free, early releases of episodes in addition to prior episodes that are no longer available on the main feed. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And with that said, I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show and welcome the newest members to the group. Tiffany M., Charlie Hutchings, and The Megan Fox. I appreciate your generous support of Nighttime. For anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever equivalent you use. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on and off the show, Follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. Now until next time, take care of each other.
hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.